are glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Stand with me now, please, to reverence the reading. Psalm 143, we're going to read verses 1 through 12, the entire psalm. The Bible says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications. In thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness. And enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. For the enemy hath persecuted my soul. He hath smitten my life down to the ground. He hath made me to dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead. Therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is desolate. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee. As a thirsty land, Selah. Hear me speedily, O Lord, my spirit faileth. Hide not thy face from me, lest I be like unto them that go down into the pit. Cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning, for in thee do I trust. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk, for I lift up my soul unto thee. Deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies. I flee unto thee to hide me. Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. Thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. Quicken me, O Lord, for thy name's sake, for thy righteousness' sake. Bring my soul out of trouble. And of thy mercy cut off mine enemies and destroy all them that afflict my soul, for I am thy servant. Thank you. You may be seated. The psalmist David opens this prayer and he closes it, reminding the Lord that he is God's servant. Uh, We have... In our world, in our culture, a hard time getting a hold of what it means to be a servant. We go to the restaurant and we pay to be served. Uh, We get on an airplane and we expect to be served. We go to Walmart and we expect to be served. And I understand that's what folks get paid to do. But you realize that the Lord Jesus said the greatest in his kingdom are those that are servant of all. We must first begin by understanding that we are a servant of all. Of the Lord. And as a servant of the Lord, I belong to Him. I am to labor at His bidding. I am to uh, live my life at His bidding. No, there's no greater thing, if you're here this morning, you're saved. There's no greater thing for you to get a hold of than to understand now that you're saved, you're a servant of the Lord. You belong to Him. And we'll deal with tonight, God willing, this concept of spiritual or Christian liberty. We are servants not being bound by his will over us. He's powerful enough to make us serve. We are servants by having been won over by his goodness and by his mercy and by his love. And we serve him willingly. Uh, We serve him with liberty. But here's David, a man after God's own heart. One of the things uh, you'll find if you read through the Psalms, and I spoke of this recently in our Sunday school lesson on your daily walk, it's a good thing to read through the Psalms. I heard a preacher say the other day, he said, I read the Psalms for my heart and I read the Proverbs for my mind. And I think that's a pretty good way to think about it. In the Psalms, many times David is pouring out his heart to God, getting very honest with the Lord. I'm not entirely sure at what season in his life he wrote this. As I read it, I can only imagine. David had some really high spots in his life. He had some really low spots in his life. 
Uh, some of the high points of David's life would be when we're introduced to him in 1 Samuel 16, 1 Samuel 15. He's anointed to be king of Israel as a teenage boy. In chapter 17, he slays the great giant Goliath. And then everything turns south for David after that for a number of years. Saul chases him around and tries to kill him, doesn't succeed. The greatest enemy that almost destroyed David, worse than Goliath and worse than King Saul, was David. David almost did what Goliath failed to do, what King Saul failed to do, and that was yield his own flesh under the lure of satanic enticement, devilish enticement. We understand the great sin he committed with Bathsheba and having Uriah killed. He sinned again in numbering the people out of pride. I don't know if he wrote this maybe after Absalom had taken over the kingdom. I'm not entirely sure. I can only envision there were some seasons in David's life where the enemy was prevailing over him. May I say this? We know we have the victory in the Lord Jesus Christ to save people. We have it. We don't always live in what we have. There are moments where our adversary gets the better of us. They're not true. It is true. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he... You know what that tells me? You and I can. In fact, the Bible says, A just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. This message is really, really geared toward the person who may be in your conscience, and you wouldn't acknowledge it outwardly this morning. There's a lot that David didn't acknowledge outwardly. Much of what he talks about here is about what was going on on the inside of him. But the fact of the matter is, you may say, the devil has assaulted me and won. He has succeeded in what he was trying to accomplish in my life. Isn't that what we read in 2 Timothy chapter 2? Didn't Timothy preach and care for people who had been taken captive by the devil? Now, was Timothy primarily out there preaching to the unsaved, or was he also preaching to saved people? Did Paul qualify? I'm not talking about just lost people in 2 Timothy 2. Or is it possible for people who are born again to not properly arm themselves with the whole armor of God and fall prey to our enemy? So here we find, I've again entitled this, The Prayer of the Defeated the prayer of the person who finds themselves having not been properly prepared for conflict and having been overcome. David used the term that he was overwhelmed. Uh, there are those who will teach you if this is where you're at, you're not even saved. Well, I, that can't be so. Here's David, according to Romans 4, a righteous and a just man, but he is he's in trouble. And you read Psalm 143, you find here's a man who is in spiritual trouble. It reminds me of when the disciples were on the boat and Jesus said, let us go over unto the other side. And I believe the prince of the power of the air stirred a storm up to keep them from getting to the gathering who the Lord Jesus would set free from the power of Satan. The disciples did not do well in that storm. In the storm, they wanted Jesus to behave in panic like them instead of them behaving in peace like him. They said, Lord, you conform to us instead of them conforming to him. Wouldn't we say the disciples were in trouble when they said, carest thou not that we perish? You know what they're saying? You, Lord Jesus, do not care about us because of the trouble we're in. At that moment, they are under more influence from the devil than they are from the Lord himself. That's a fair statement to make. And it's possible that you're here this morning, that's where you find yourself. May I say this, if the Lord is your Savior, your recourse is always to flee to him. 
Last week we looked at Ruth being under his wings. That is the recourse every time. The Lord Jesus Christ is our avenue to flee and hide under the wings of God. And so we find David in a moment of defeat by the enemy, getting, uh, pouring his heart out and responding in a way that God could help him. So then from him we receive some instruction. We'll give you, with the Lord's help, four things this morning out of this psalm. We're going to break it down into four parts and look at that as David prays uh, this prayer of the defeated. Let's begin in verses 1 and 2, his approach to the Lord. How does he approach the Lord? Verse 1, he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. What he's saying is, Lord, I'm I'm going to speak to you, and I would like for you to listen to me. How many of you have ever needed to get a hold of um, your congressional office or someone that is in representative government to, to assist you in something and found that, that you were immediately within five minutes on the phone with your congressman or senator. How many of you know? I had a number of years ago when I was going to travel to Nigeria, I had a question about a visa, and so I contacted my senator's office. That's what I was told I might ought to do or some complications surrounding that. So I contacted them. Boy, the office was very helpful, but I never talked to the senator. Too busy, right? And I understand that. But I'm trying to set something for you. If today... If you wanted to talk to the president, I doubt you do. But if you did, let's just put your favorite president in office, okay? Put all that aside. And you wanted to talk to your president, could you? No way. You and I aren't important enough. I think sometimes we who are saved take for granted the high privilege we have that we can call on God in prayer. The Bible says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time. We're talking about literally being able to communicate with your creator, the maker of the universe, and he through his son Jesus Christ cared enough about me and you to save us and give us a means to access him in our time of need. And he's such a great and mighty God, he's not like us. He's never too busy to take as many communications as he, as he wants at one given time. That blows my mind. He's not bound like you and I are. Do you know how many millions of petitions are coming into God momentarily? And he handles every one of them? He's never said, oops, I forgot about that one. I can't handle five phone calls in a day, let alone five million in 30 seconds. <laughs> The Lord has no trouble. I think it ought to put us in awe that God has made a way for us who are but dust. You think about, you know, I like to remind on our family devotions, I told our children today, if any of us start thinking too highly of, our, uh, of ourselves, let's remember, let's put ourselves in the perspective of all humanity and let's make ourselves a fraction. We are one eight billionth. One eight billionth of humanity. And yet... So we might say, what is man that thou art mindful? Yet David, with boldness and humility, says, O Lord, give ear to my supplications. Now, why should God give ear to David's supplications? Well, I believe David thought the same thing. Because listen to what he says. In thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness. You know what he does not say here? According to my righteousness, answer me. Notice verse 2. And enter not into judgment with thy servant, Lord, please do not answer me according to my worthiness. Please do not enter into judgment. Because, here's what he says, Enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. 
That lines right up with what Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. There's not a just man that doeth good and sinneth not. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God will not hear you and I in our prayers because of our faithfulness or our righteousness. That is not a license to be unfaithful or to live unrighteously. But you and, how many of you want God to hear you according to how perfectly you have executed righteousness in your life? God says, I'll hear you if you're as good as I. Then he'll hear nobody. That's what David's saying. There's not a living man justified. Lord, I cannot approach you because I am worthy to be heard. But I know you're faithful and I know you're righteous and I'm, I am entreating you on your good name, not on mine. That make sense? When a child has disobeyed his parent, if he knows his parent is a good parent, there at some point in time will say, well, I'm going to speak to my parent, not because I have been the best child, but because I know my parent loves me and wants what's best for me. And if we can understand that in a human relationship, surely we can get all that with God. So just give you a few things, especially if you're taking notes, to note about his approach to the Lord. Number one, he approaches with confidence in God's character. He is confident in the Lord's character. He says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications. In thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness. Faith might be summed up this way. I am confident that the Lord will always do right. I'll, I'll tell you something. I, I'm, I'm, I was pondering this this morning. I wasn't even connecting it to the message, but I've sat with a couple of men over the last 14 days, and one was probably middle-aged and the other is at the end of his life. And both of them, one because he's bitter and angry and another because I think he has enough confidence and trust to open up a little bit and share his heart, both of them admittedly have some problems with how God has dealt with them. Open up and said so. The one man just angry at God because of how his life has turned out. This hasn't been right and I don't think God... Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, saying God did to Adam and Eve wrong in the garden. Now, I just want to say this. I use those illustrations to say this. Many times, deep inside of our heart, somewhere, we're not confident that the Lord has always done right, is doing right, and always will do right. But He will. God is not a man that He should lie, neither the Son of Man that He should repent. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are judgment. Uh, He was without iniquity, just and right is he. How many times we look at our world and immediately we blame the maker of the world for all that's wrong? If God is so good, why is there so much bad? I asked the man that said this last week, I said, have you ever railed on Satan like you're railing on God? I already know the answer to that question. You often don't rail on your own daddy. That's the truth of it. Man needs to be born again. Here's David. How many of us know this? When David is telling the Lord, I know you're faithful and I know you're righteous. When we read this psalm, he says he's overwhelmed. He says his heart is desolate. Would you say he's in a good life circumstance right now? If we're not careful, we let our our world change our view of God. May I say this? We'll never go forward in approaching the Lord unless we approach him with this attitude. The Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 6, we're to humble ourselves 
Therefore, unto the mighty hand of God, they may exalt us in due time. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. You know what? You know what happens this morning? I believe this with all my heart. If you study how our adversary works, he loves to get his attitude toward God off on us. He loves to get us thinking about the Lord the same way he does. Is that not what he did in the garden? Lucifer, angry at God because he can't be God instead, comes to Eve and said, God is holding out on you. I'm paraphrasing. He told you not to eat that fruit because he knew if you did, it would bless you. He doesn't want to bless you. He wants to control you. You better pay close attention. There's a lot of young people in this room this morning. You better pay close attention when I'm telling you. You hear what's preached from God's Word. You get instruction from parents who love you, trying to teach you to do what's right. Your pastor trying to influence you. And Satan says, if you follow God's will for your life, you are missing out on something. And he'll rail on God and get you to think, God just wants to control me. He doesn't want me to have any joy. He doesn't want me to have any blessings. You better be careful. You and I, adult or child or young person alike, when we start thinking that God is erring or has erred somewhere, we're in trouble. You know what? I don't know. I don't know if David allowed that to happen. The Bible says David was a man after God's own heart. But here's we see that demonstrating that when he approaches the Lord, he is confident in the Lord's character. Can I say this this morning? That if you're here and you're hearing what I'm saying to you, and you're not confident in the Lord's character, somewhere in your life you need repentance. Somewhere Satan has lied to you and you've believed his lie over believing the truth of God. If you feel that somehow God is not worthy of your unfettered trust, somewhere there's a lie. Somewhere something has happened and the offense of a man or the lie of Satan has changed your attitude toward God. And may I say this, in mercy God will give you repentance if you let him. Let God prove himself to you. David here had a right attitude toward God's character. He said, Lord, in your faith... You know what David could have said? Lord, if you're so faithful and you made me king, why am I defeated? Hadn't God promised victory to the people of God? So why couldn't David have said, Lord, I go back there and I read what you promised the children of Israel by Moses as they crossed the wilderness that they would drive out all the enemies. But here I am, hundreds of years later, and I'm having to kill a Philistine. Looks to me like you don't keep your word very good. You know, there's nothing wrong with the word of God. There's just something wrong with the faith of his people. Amen? God is not broken today. No, no, no. That's where man comes in. So God has no error. There's no fallacy in his character. God is truly holy, righteous, Good, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, just, and true, all at the same time. If we want to know goodness, study the Lord. He is the definition of goodness. So David approaches the Lord with confidence in the Lord's character. Number two, he has a comprehension of his own sinfulness. This is key to everything. By the way, the comprehension of the one leads to the comprehension of the other. It's Isaiah in chapter 6. He said he saw the Lord high and lifted up. In the temple. And then he said what? Woe is me. I never. It never ceases to fail. A low view of God leads to a high view of self. And a high view of God leads to a righteous view of self. Which means I've got to come down low. 
David says this, again, I've already said it, but for the outline's sake and clarity's sake, let me say it again. Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications. In thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness, and enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. He said, I am your servant, but please don't enter into judgment, because in, I believe it's the 32nd Psalm, David says that he would ask the Lord not to weigh his iniquities, because... He said, I'm going to be judged if you do. Please don't count my iniquities. You know David's saying? You know what he's asking for in verses 1 and 2? I'm asking you for pardon. I'm asking you for mercy. If I can emphasize a theme to us this morning, may we be a people that understand we need the mercy of God. It is of His mercies we're not consumed. If we're to ever have any personal revival, church revival, community revival... May I say this? I can't guarantee revival for the next guy, but I can, under the truth of God's Word, get a proper and an honest view of myself and say, Lord, please do not deal with me according to my righteousness, but in your righteousness deal with me. That's, friend, that's why we pray in Jesus' name. We're praying on His credit, on His credibility, on His character. David had a hold of that all the way back here in the Old Testament. And so he had a comprehension of his own sinfulness. And he's asking for mercy and pardon. He says, Lord, I need help, but I don't deserve it. I mean, that's what's being said here. I need help, but I've not earned it. I'm in trouble. How many ever got yourself in a position, uh, either financially or maybe in, in your schedule, where you came up and you were short on what you need, and you look back and you say, it was my fault, I did this. But yet, you still need help. And David's here, and spiritually he is, he is, he's in a mess, and I, it seems that he knows how he got there. How I many would say the mess that happened with Bathsheba was one man's fault? That was David. It wasn't Uriah's fault for going to battle. It wasn't Bathsheba's fault, though you could say, well, she had some blame. But if David had been where God told him to be, that would have never happened. And David, you know what, though? You know what's the difference between David and Saul? Saul would have said, ah, you know, those people, those people, that Bathsheba, I tell you, she shouldn't have been there. David said, he was told, thou art the man. And David said, and I'm going to have to die for it. I have sinned. He owned it. You with me? It's what happened with him. And so here you see that same spirit in him. Uh, we see his approach to God. There's confidence in the Lord's character. There's a comprehension of his own sinfulness. And he has contrition when he considers himself compared to the Lord. Contrition is a word we don't really hear much or think about. Uh, the Bible says that it's a, a, a contrite spirit is the sacrifice that we're to offer to God. Contrite means broken. It means broken to shivers, to be made small. And that's what you find in David here in Psalm 143. You find it in Psalm 51. Turn there with me very quickly if you would. Psalm 51, it's his prayer of confession of his sin with Bathsheba to God. In Psalm 51... Verse uh, 16, he says, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. And that in verses 1 and 2 is exactly what David is offering to God, a broken and a contrite spirit. The opposite of that is haughtiness. Contrition versus haughtiness. Haughtiness says, no, hey, you know, yeah, I did this, but who doesn't? Yes, this has happened in my life, and maybe I've been snared, but it's the culture. No, no, brokenness here, David says, Lord, enter not into judgment with thy servant. 
for, for in thy sight shall no living man be just, man living be justified. He said, there's no way I'll stand on my own merit. I am pleading with you based upon your mercy and your goodness and righteousness and faithfulness. That's number one, his approach to the Lord, verses one and two. Number two, his acknowledgement before the Lord, verses three and four. He is very honest with God about what's happened to him. He says, for the enemy hath persecuted my soul. He hath smitten my life down to the ground. He hath made me. You get a hold of this? Who's in charge here? The enemy or David? Help me now. The enemy. He hath made me to dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead. Therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is desolate. David said, Lord, I've got some problems. The enemy has defeated me. The enemy has defeated me. He begins with outlining the assault of the enemy on himself. He says, the enemy hath persecuted my soul. That word persecuted means this, to run after, uh, usually with hostile intent, um, to chase or to put to flight, to follow after, to hunt, to persecute, or to put someone under pressure or pursuit. So we, if I remember being in the woods one day, and I've told this story many times, but I remember uh, I was in the woods. There's a number of canine tracks down the side of the Forest Service Road where I was at. It was about two miles from my house and when we lived up uh, north on Harvey Mountain. And the woods, you guys who are in the woods a lot, you know what I mean. They felt different. It was quiet. I'm just still quiet. There was a, an eagle sitting up on a tree. So something, there had been a kill somewhere. And I see all these canine tracks. I'm thinking somebody shot a deer or an elk and they come in there with the, with the, the hounds to find it. I watch a deer and it is hunkered down, sneaking through the woods up the timber line. I mean, it is like, it is under, it, something's pursuing this thing. And I'm up there to elk hunt, and I'm realizing this is not going to be a good elk hunt today. I'm in the wrong place. Then I, I'm cow calling, and I hear somebody holler at me, right, on one side. And then I hear it again. I'm like, what is that? Next thing you know, no, no, I had wolves on either side howling. They're answering my cow call, and I'm in between. I decided I was done. I'm going home. <laughs> I don't want to be hunting here. My point is, I watched that white-tailed deer that day. It was the first thing that signaled me something's wrong in the woods today. I don't know what it is. That animal was, it was intimidated by the presence of anything. I mean, hundreds of yards from me, and it's sneaking away. There are people living their lives like that. Look, I know where I live. I know the county I live in. I know the region I live in. Fear controls many lives. You know why? The enemy is constantly pressing and pursuing. You may hear this morning, you say, the devil will not give me a break. Everywhere I turn, my, my sin is either pulling at me because it's in front of me, luring me, or it's behind me, laying guilt on me. But that's called, it's called a snare. David said, my sin is ever before me. Here's what happens. The Bible says, the devil walketh about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Well, I know this just from watching predators. They draw blood. I'm going to push you even harder. Truth? We go on and on giving more illustrations about how predators work and how they pressure a flock or they pressure a herd until they expose the weak ones and then they pressure even more. That's what this word persecute means. 
When you look up uh, synonyms for persecute, it means to dog something. I mean, it's just, it won't leave you alone. Constantly, look, it can be, it can be a sin of, of passion. It could be a sin of your past. But I know this, Satan will, he wants control. True? He wants control. He wants to control your mind. He wants to control your emotions. He wants control of your body because that's what God deserves and that's what he wants to rob God of. He's a thief. He wants to rob God of glory. He wants to rob God of worship. He wants to rob God of your service. And he'll do that by dogging you. Constantly at every turn, tempting you to quit, tempting you to commit something you shouldn't, tempting you to throw in the towel, tempting you to sin in your spirit, tempting you to sin in your body. It's what he, he got after Job and wouldn't lay off. True? Here's David. He said, the enemy hath persecuted me. You study David's life. You remember when David was running from Saul? He would hide in the cave, spare Saul's life. You would think, God will bless that. He'll deliver him. No, no, as soon as Saul would promise, I'm done, I won't chase you anymore. And the moment he had opportunity, he went back on his word and chased him again. 3,000 against 400, that's fair odds. And Saul chased him all over that mountainside, all over the country, until finally David said, there is but a step between me and death. This is wearing me out, I'm going to die. You say, man, is it ever like that for a Christian? You better believe it. There are moments of of Christian life. I remember saying to somebody one day, I think it was Chris King, I said, I can feel the devil's breath on my neck. And I wasn't laughing. He was dogging me. How does he do that? Circumstances, uh, people problems. I mean, there are things that Satan uses in our lives to pressure us, to turn us against the Lord David said, the enemy hath persecuted me. The word I use here is intimidation. It intimidates. That's what persecution does. It causes you to flee. It causes you to run. Intimidation. Then he says, he's not only intimidated me, he's injured me. For the enemy hath persecuted my soul. He hath what? Smitten my life down to the ground. Smitten means this, to crumble, to beat to pieces, to break in pieces, to bruise, to be contrite to crush, to destroy, to oppress, to humble, to smite. How many wounded people do we have? And I mean spiritually wounded, psychologically wounded. You know what Satan is? Remember, hold on, hold on. He is, he is an adversary. The Bible likens him to a roaring lion. It likens him to a wolf. He is called a thief, a murderer, and a liar, all by God. God calls him all those things. And so here David says, he not only pursued me, he's put the pressure on me, intimidated me, but at some point in time, the enemy caught up with him and smote him. I can't help but think that he's referring back to Psalm 51, the great sin. He says he was contrite there. David's being snared in that sin broke something in David. But you know, I'm glad for this. Isaiah 61 and then Luke 4 says it's the fulfillment that he's come to bind up the wounded. Uh, He is the great physician the Lord Jesus is to heal, to set the captive free, so on and so forth. My point is this, though. David said the enemy succeeded. He's persecuted me, but he's also smitten me down to the ground, meaning he took me down. He didn't just fall. He said the enemy knocked me down. He broke something in me. He wounded me. By the way, sin will wound you every time. Sin is a grievous wound. It'll wound your conscience. It'll wound your spirit. And when we, when we yield to the lies of Satan, the Bible calls his lies fiery 
darts and when they hit you, meaning when you receive one of the lies of the devil, it is going to poison you. That's why it's important to have the shield of faith. But this message is about what about when you didn't have the shield of faith up and you got hit? Then what? Well, David is showing us. He's being honest with God. He's saying, Lord, I'm defeated. It's a hard thing to admit being defeated. Is it not? What makes it so hard? Pride. 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 Right. How many of us think, look, here's David. What is David, one of the things he's known for being? I know a shepherd, but a warrior. I mean, how many times had David been defeated in physical battle? I don't read of any in my Bible. I can't recall any where he lost a battle with the Philistines. But David lost some battles with sin and self, and it wounded him. And he's telling the Lord, Lord, I'm defeated. The enemy persecuted me, but the enemy has smitten me. He has, he's, he's hit his mark, Lord. I'm wounded. I'm smitten down to the ground. I'm broken in pieces by what my enemy has done to me. Then he says, not only was the enemy intimidating and injuring, but he isolated him. He says, for the enemy hath persecuted my soul. He hath smitten my life down to the ground. He hath made me to dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead, meaning I withdrew and hid myself. I'm in darkness. You know, we hide in darkness. There's often because of shame often because of a need for recovery. There were times truly in David's life he lived in caves, did he not? Uh, But here you think about the spiritual analogy. There are those that draw in because they have been smitten by the enemy. The Bible says, though, if we walk in darkness, we're not in fellowship with God. You know, darkness is about what? What is darkness about? Help me here this morning. Concealment. It's about concealment. How many people are walking around that if we really knew... What was going on on the inside, it would scare them and us half to death. Meaning, they shroud, I read this week on a negative side of this in the book of Isaiah, that those in Isaiah's day concealed themselves behind lies. They created a shroud of darkness to conceal who they really were. They put themselves forward as righteous, worshiping people, but inwardly they were not. The Pharisees did the same thing. But here David is in a dark place. This speaks more not so much of defilement as depression, a place of of withdrawing, of hiding from society, hiding from everybody else. Why? Because he's wounded. You know what a wounded animal will do? Find a dark place to hide. I don't want interaction with anybody. Something unhealthy about that, friend, especially for God's people. God didn't say, go you into your cave and hide. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. We're not supposed to be hiding in the dark. We're supposed to be spreading the light. But you know what a wounded Christian will do? I'm not going to church. I know. I'm going to, I, got, I just got to conceal. I got to. Why? Beaten down to the ground. I don't know about you. When you've been beaten down to the ground, do you want to go back out where you can get caught again? You with me this morning? So here we find that the enemy had intimidated him, injured him, and now he's got him isolated. He says, I'm in darkness as those that have been long dead. He said, I am. You know what he is saying? He's near, I believe the man's near death in his description. He said, I've, I've pulled off and I'm hidden. And the enemy had accomplished much in his life. So he speaks of the assault of the enemy 
and persecution and smiting him and pushing him into the darkness. Then he talks about the accomplishment of the enemy. By that, what I mean is, you say, well, that's what you've been talking about. What effect did all of this being persecuted and smitten and pushed back into the darkness? He said, he hath made me. He hath made me. He's put so much pressure on me. The only place for me to get any refuge is to go off and hide from him. And he's, who's in, again, we'll say it again, who's in control? The enemy is controlling his life. He has made me to dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead. Then he begins to talk about what it accomplished on him. Verse 4, four he says, Therefore, because this is my condition, therefore is my spirit overwhelmed. This word overwhelmed means uh, to be shrouded over with something or clothed or like the sea covering something over. To be as, as darkness would overtake you. He said, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed by my circumstances. He says, therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is desolate. Is desolate. The word desolate means to stun, to devastate, or to stupefy. There are times that an attack of the enemy has this effect on us. Stunning. I don't, I don't know what to do. It leaves us astonished, if you would. A destitute saying, I don't, I don't even know the song we sang talked about it. My mind is confused. I don't know which way is up. I've shared my testimony many times, but I remember as a 16-year-old boy, uh, some circumstances in our, our lives, my parents are here today, they could tell you about that, had just changed my world. And I remember thinking, what would I liken my mind to today? I knew that God had saved me, but there were moments I'm like, is that true? I... I don't feel like a saved person. I don't act like a saved person, but I believe God. And I'm not living like I should, but I know how I should. And I want to do right, but I also want to do wrong. I thought the best analogy I could come to was when you reel off fishing line off of your, your reel, and it's a big ball, and it's all mangled up, and trying to pull it all apart and figure it all out. Life didn't make sense to me. I was confused. I think the Bible word would be desolate. I don't know what to think. You know why? Part of it was the enemy had hit his target. I'd been hit. But I'll tell you what. You take that mess of twine to God and say, here you go. If you, if you can do something with this mess, you can have it. <laughs> Listen, friend. We fight getting to this point, and I don't believe God wants us wounded and defeated, but sometimes it takes a defeat to get us to be dependent. Sometimes we have to get whacked in battle to realize our strength does not come from within, it comes from above. I'm not trying to be cute or quaint. I'm trying to say sometimes God will let us go into battle in our strength, lose some battles so we can figure out who we really are instead of who we think we are. You with me this morning? So we find the effect upon David's life, the acknowledgement as he says, here's how the enemy has assaulted me. Here is what he's accomplished. He has left me devastated and desolate. I have been stunned by what he's done to me. And oh God, I don't know where to turn and what to do. I'm in darkness. But you know what David's doing that's right? In praying, it's shifting his focus. Number three, and I'm not, this is not psychology class, this is a spiritual class. His approach to the Lord we've seen, his acknowledgement before the Lord, number three, his attentiveness to the Lord. Verse five, he says, I remember. Ah, 
He's told God about himself. You know where David's focus is, and rightfully so. He is wounded. When you are wounded, you know what you think about? Look, friend, this is not hard. When your finger, I, I nearly cut the end of my finger off one day squirrel hunting when I was 12 years old. All the way home, you know what I was thinking about? I wasn't thinking about what was for supper. I wasn't thinking about my chores. I was thinking about my finger. It hurt. <laughs> and it was bleeding bad. <laughs> when you're wounded, you know what you're thinking about? You're hurt. Somebody says, well, you just need to get your focus on the Lord. Well, you do. But how do you do that? You start telling the Lord about what's wrong with you and how you got there. Lord, I got, I, I got defeated. <laughs> the devil slipped me a bag of lies and I believed it and it has wounded me. And then explaining and pouring out his heart to the Lord. Then he says, I remember the days of old. What makes me think this comes later in David's life. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land, Selah. A couple of things here in these verses. His attentiveness to the Lord. Number one, he revised his focus. He says, I'm going to go back in time and remember what you used to do. Lord, I remember your works of old. You say, what exactly? Or I remember the days of old. Lord, I remember... What I've heard, you know, I'll be honest with you, as a, a younger man, a younger, I'm still, I'm not an old guy yet. Man, I've, I've heard some stories of what God has done. You know what that ought to do for me? Give me hope for what God can do. You know what? It does good to hear some of the other generations talk about, well, this is what God did in my day. Not so we can just reminisce. You know what David's saying? Lord, I'm beat. I need to get my focus on someone other than me. He said, I remember the days of old. I remember the days of old. I remember what you've done in time past. For some of you, you need to remember the day God saved you. You need. You know, I wonder if David was sitting there thinking, Lord, I remember the day Goliath fell. I remember when I wounded him instead of him wounding me. You may need to remember a past victory God gave you before. I remember the days of old. Lord, I remember in times past some things you've done. So his, in his memory, he focused on the Lord. In past, he, he could have gone back and said, man, I remember hearing stories like this. I'm another casualty. I'm another Saul, he might have thought. No, I remember the days of old, it's more specific. I meditate on all thy works. So he engages his memory. says, I'm thinking back to days of old, and then I'm meditating. I'm stopping to dwell upon and think about. The word meditate means to ponder, to imagine uh, to the idea of running it through your mind, to study on something. I meditate on all thy works. You know, he's getting his mind on the ability of God. Someone's works reveal their ability. Is it not true? We meet a good artist or we meet a good mechanic or we meet a good architect, someone that's... We, why do we call them good? We've seen their work. Man, they do good work. They are good at what they do. Well, just stop and consider what God has created. Stop and consider how He sent His Son to die for your sins. Stop and consider the truth, not the fiction, but the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You think about what our Savior went through and how He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. I'm going to tell you something. We often would rather bathe in self-pity than get the help we need. You know what? You know what self-pity is rooted in? Can I help you this morning? There are people who say, my life is so terrible. Things are so bad. You know what it's rooted in? 
We think of this. We think the guy that goes around boasting all the time, he's the only one that's proud. No self-pity is, it is pride. Life in the world is about me and my happiness, and when it's not going that way, then life is bad. God is still God, and he's still good. David said, I remember the works of old. He put his memory in, into place and said, I'm going to think back about what God has done. I remember the days of old. I meditate. He took time to stop and think about what God has done. I don't know anything God has done. You may need to be born again. <laughs> but if you're saved, if you're saved, you can be saved and wounded and you need to think about what has God done in other people's lives, in the work of creation, in your own life and saving you. If you're called to serve and how he did that and meditate on the works. He said, I meditate on how many of you? He said, I meditate on all your works. I muse on the work of thy hands. That word muse is almost a, a restatement of meditating. Muse means to ponder or to think just like meditation does. You know what it means to be amused? Not to think. Well, I like to preach here for about 30 minutes. We're an amusement-driven culture. I want things that keep me from thinking. Many times amusement is the cave we are living in. If I can be amused, I don't have to think about my wounds or God. Amusement is often a tool of... Look, rest is one thing. But if I'm getting something that's constantly disengaging my mind, isn't David wounded? But he said, here in the dark, i got some time to think about some things. I'm going to remember the days of old. You know what? How many revivals we read about in the Bible? Now, God may not see fit to give us a national revival. I don't know why he would. If he did, it would just be his mercy. But can't we go back and say, look what God did. You know, when, he, when, when Judah didn't get a revival, I read about how Manasseh got delivered even though he was a wicked man. Do you realize Manasseh died right with God? Is that not a work of God? Yeah, there's so many works. You say, I don't know what to muse on. Just start reading your Bible. Remember the days of old and muse on the things of God. Stop and think about what God has done. Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church, we as a church, we ought to muse on some things. Honestly, we ought to think back. Look at what God has done for this church. And that'll, that'll get your perspective where it ought to be. And so David said, I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the works of thy hands. What we gather from this is David says, I'm not thinking about my being beaten down. I've got my attention on God. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about in verse 1, uh, see, uh, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and uh, let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne in heaven. For consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. You know what? David's about to faint here. And you know what he did? He exercised what we read in Hebrews 12. He got his attention on the faithfulness of the Lord. And so then his attentiveness is seen in his revised focus and then in his responding in faith. Verse 5 or verse 6, he says, I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land, Selah. He does not say, I stretch forth my hands over the, the past. Lord, I'm not... You know what? He's, he's, don't, don't miss me here. He's not thirsty merely 
for a deliverance from his present circumstance. His present circumstance made him thirsty for the Lord. Many times we are thirsty for God's blessings, but not for God. Can I, can I use this illustration? And I don't mean any, any, any ill will. This is childish. It's just natural being a child. When my parents come around, my little guys get really happy. If I said today, white tennis shoes. That is the benefit of having grandma around. Now, we want the grandchildren to learn to love grandma and grandpa. But sometimes, you know why they're excited about grandma and grandpa? Let's just be honest. They're little selfish children, like all of us have been, and some of us still are. They want the benefits and the blessings. All right, it may not be white tennis shoes. It may be cream cheese braids. Uh, That's what you get when mom comes around. Blessings. Now, she brings those blessings because she loves. Her heart's pierced driven snow in that. I do this because I love you. And Grandpa buys corn dogs. And um, we go, we do all kinds of fun things with Grandpa in town and buy Wendy's. And, right? These are the benefits of having grandparents. But the truth is, many times the little ones, the reason they want Grandma and Grandpa to come around is they know what comes with them. God wants us to get to the point where it's not, Lord, I'm not asking for health. I'm not asking you for wealth. I just want you. Eh? Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Isn't that what Satan challenged about Job? Lord, if you slay him, he'll curse you. And Job said, no. No, no, because I love you, Lord. We, we, we don't understand this kind of love. God has to teach it to us. Right? Did God love us because of the benefit he gets? All we've ever done is cost him. Truth? Cost him his most precious. Cost him his only begotten son. Our Lord and Savior, God in the flesh, it cost him a perfect, pure... You realize Jesus could have been king then. And he put it all up for the cross. And this morning what I'm trying to say is, God let a defeat in David's life. He allowed it. Didn't cause it, but he allowed it. And allowed David to thirst after God. Young people, listen to me this morning. Get a thirst for God. Say, I don't have it. Then ask him to give it to you. Say, what will happen? I don't know, but you can trust him. You can trust him. Amen? Amen. David said, I thirst for thee. He says the same thing in Psalm 63, that he thirsts for God and his soul hungers after God. And so he responds to his defeat in faith. Instead of responding and saying, how could God let my enemy do this to me? He says, Lord, I'm defeated and I'm stretching forth my hands unto thee. Like a little baby saying, God, I need help. And he responded in faith. He revised his focus, responded in faith. Finally, his appeal to the Lord. What's he asking the Lord for? This really adds to what we just said. He's not after merely the Lord's benefits. He wants the Lord. Notice his request. And I, I often, I've committed many of these verses to memory to help me in my morning time, time when I'm seeking the Lord. He says, verse 7, Hear me speedily, O Lord. My spirit faileth. He said, Lord, I'm, I'm checking out here. I'm failing. I'm failing. I'm, I'm, I'm out of strength. I'm out of life. Hide not thy face from me, lest I be like unto them that go down the pit. He is explaining the desperate strait he's in, and unless the Lord intervenes, he's going to falter. Verse 8, Cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning, for in thee do I trust. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk, for I lift up my soul unto thee. You know what he's saying? He's saying, Lord, I want that ear to hear. He said, I want you to hear me, so cause me to hear you. 
Now notice, who had been in control of his life? Who put him in the darkness? Who smote him to the ground? Now David's saying, I don't want him to be the one causing my life. I want you to. I don't want the enemy to be the one that's causing my life to be the way it is. Lord, I am putting myself in your hands. Get a hold of my ear. Cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning, for in thee do I trust. He said, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. Help me hear you. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk. He is saying, I'm trusting in you with all my heart. Direct my steps. You know what he's saying? Lord, I trust you enough to take control of this broken mess. Is that not what he is? I trust you enough to take control. I'm not the Spirit of God, but I know this. If you're saved, this is a wrestling match in the heart of every saved person. Who's going to control? When God saved you, you knew who was in control? You thought you were, probably. (laughs) But it's the adversary. There's a point where we submit, meaning we willingly give our will into God's and say, Lord, I'm willing to let you determine the direction of my life. You with me? Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk, for I lift up my soul unto thee. So I'm taking my, those hands that are outstretched, they're taking the deepest inner being I have and putting it right in front of you. And I'm asking you, for lack of a better word, reprogram me. You reprogram this thing and cause me to know the way I should go. You know what? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. You know what going astray is? In the Bible, it's defined as going your own way. When I go my way, I'm going the wrong way. I've got to go God's way. You know what God allowed? David to have a serious defeat in his life. He's left desolate and devastated. But you know what the fruit was? Lord, here's everything. Just take it. And you, you take charge. You lead me in the way I should go. He is yielding to God, God's permission to do with his life as he pleases. So isn't he God? Yes, but God doesn't work like Satan. God is not a dictator and a tyrant who will overwhelm you. He's waiting for you to present it to him. That's what David did. And then he says, Calls me here thy loving kindness in the morning from thee do I trust. Calls me to know the way wherein I should walk for I lift up my soul unto thee. Under thee. Verse 9, Deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies. I flee unto thee to hide me. He's not running to the dark to hide. He's running to the light. You with me? Is God not light? You say, wait a minute, Pastor. You said last week that under his wings, is that not a dark place? Not the kind of dark place David had been hiding in. He fled to be alone to hide. Now he's fleeing to God. He said, I'm not hiding myself. Would you hide me from my enemy? He's asking for deliverance and protection. Verse 10, teach me. Oh, those two words. I encourage you. Study those out in your Bible. Teach me to do. Hold on. What's he say? Thy will for thou art my god thy spirit is good lead me into the land of uprightness you know what he's saying he's saying lord i want to do right the enemy has succeeded and in our lives the enemy succeeds and we do wrong but i want to do right and i'm asking you to deliver me not that i can go my way but that i may go your way thy will be done thy will be done and then he says quicken me that's a that's a request for life and strength verse 11 quicken me O lord for thy name's sake For thy righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. He said, Lord, you're righteous, and I want other people to know it. Would you please help me for your righteousness' sake? You know, he's reminding the Lord of the same thing he said in the beginning. I'm not asking because I deserve this, but I'm asking because you're good. 
Would you please deliver me? Would you quicken me? David prays it often. You know what he's saying? The opposite of quickening is fainting. Give me life. Give me strength. And then his reasoning we find in verse 12. And of thy mercy, there it is, of thy mercy cut off mine enemies and destroy all them that afflict my soul. Why? He ends it with this. Here's his reasoning. For I am thy servant. You know what? At some point in time, the servant of God was being made to do something by the enemy of God. Is that, not, is that not where we began this psalm? A servant of God being made to run, being made to be smitten down on the ground, being made to hide in a dark place? What's the answer to the devil's manipulation in your life and mine? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. How do we oppose ourselves? Isn't that what 2 Timothy 2 said? In meekness instructing those them that oppose themselves. How does a person oppose themselves? By running from God's way. We oppose ourselves and step into the snare of the devil by saying, boy, if God directs my life, no telling what will happen. I better try this. I better go this way. And we find ourselves persecuted, smitten down, and desolate. And God says, here I am. (laughs) May we be like David and say, Lord, I am defeated. I've been smitten, but I'm asking you to open my ear, help me to hear you, show me the way I should go, give me the life to do it, and give me victory over my enemies for your righteousness' sake. The way we overcome our enemy is by submission. Here it is. The Lord Jesus said the way up is down. The way to live is to die, and the way to have victory is surrender. Submit. Submit.